Well, for those of you that are visiting or may not have been here in a while, we are continuing on our fall sermon series, and we have come to the final sermon in the fall sermon series, the Tenth Commandment. We've been doing the Ten Commandments, and uh, we've arrived on the Tenth. And it's a commandment that in some ways is familiar to many of you, but we don't always think through the ramifications. And the, the Tenth Commandment is do not covet your neighbor's wife, or basically any of their goods, including their oxen. And probably one of the reasons we forget that commandment is we don't, not many of us have oxen today. So, you know, but the reality is, is that coveting, interestingly enough, can be a very insidious sin. You know, when we think of the sins and we name off the sins that we don't do typically, this is not one of the ones that we typically name off. You know, because most of us are not really thinking about the whole notion and idea of coveting. But it's a very subtle sin that really, in many ways, not only is a sin in itself, but it serves as a stepping stone to other sins. Case in point, the Old Testament reading from the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, that is referring to, if you don't know the context, where David coveted Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba, the famous affair, committing adultery. And so David commits adultery with Bathsheba because he first coveted his neighbor's wife. Now, it's, what's interesting just to think about that in the first place is that David is called when he's anointed, when he's made king, and Jesus even says this, a man after God's own heart. That David is a man after God's own heart. And yet at the same time when he became very successful, had palaces, wealth, had successes in battle, was married. And yet because he became complacent, he coveted his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. And then because trouble started when she got pregnant and he had to come up with a plan. He had Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed. And that's what can happen when coveting leads to another sin, adultery, and another sin, murder. And it's amazing how coveting was basically the foundation for that downward fall. Another biblical example in the Old Testament comes from First uh, Kings. And there is a couple, he's the king and the wife, Ahab and Jezebel. Now, some of you know the name Jezebel, and you may even know that if you call a woman a Jezebel, it's not flattering. But you may not know why. See, Jezebel was very conniving. And her husband, Ahab, Coveted. Now, this is a king. Again, he's got palaces. He's got wealth. He's got power. Coveted a garden. Naboth. Naboth had this beautiful garden that he had manicured and kept. And Naboth went to him and said, I'd really like to buy your garden. And the guy said, well, it's really not for sale. And if you understand the mindset of the Israelites, to have land means your family can continue and you can continue to support yourself. So Ahab starts pouting. And Jezebel, his wife, says, what's wrong? 
And he says, well, I really want this garden coveting, and I can't get it. So Jezebel has Naboth killed. Great wife, huh? But I mean, the point is, is that it was his coveting that led to her having Naboth killed. And if you read scripture in different places, it makes the point that this is the kind of thing that can happen. Let me read to you from the book of James, which is Jesus' brother, by the way, who after the resurrection believed in him and saw and thought about his brother and how he lived and some of the challenges that we see in people's lives and we see in Scripture. So James writes in chapter 4, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war in you? In other words, you have these wants. We oftentimes describe them as needs. I need this. But it's really a want. That's really what it's about. You want something and do not have it. So you commit murder. I think he has these two episodes in mind. One about coveting a wife and the other about coveting a thing. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And there's the point. See, it's really not a need. It's a want. And when we can't or don't have it and we see that someone else has it, that's when the coveting comes in. And it lays the foundation for other challenges. Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel writes, They come before you, you being the Some of you just might be happy that everybody has what they, what they have that you don't have. But if not, you sometimes want what they have, even if it means harm for them. Or you just want them to lose what they have. And that's a sad state, but look at our culture. Look at our culture in the business world when businesses are in competition. Look at our culture in the political world. And you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Because people do want something bad to happen to someone else. And it's a sad state, but it's a reality. Instead of rejoicing with those who have. And learning to be content with what we have. Learning to be content with what's going on in the world around us. And maybe prayerful if we don't like it. We change. And we become coveting and jealous and envious. And then we become destructive, which is what the scripture is talking about. And maybe just destructive in our hearts. Maybe in our lives. Because we all want. We want that the wor- what the world has to offer. We want to have things. We want to have, as we call it, happiness. Or let's take it a step further, pleasure. Because that's what represents success and contentment in the world. When you have everything you want. But what people find is enough is never enough. When that is your attitude. When that's what you're going after. You know, it's really interesting because 
Think about that. Put that on hold for a second and contrast if we're living for the Lord. Because when we're living for the Lord, we're not necessarily looking for pleasure in what is wrong. We're not necessarily trying to always grasp things and get things because our heart is set on him. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. And some of you have heard me talk about a portion of this before. When I was in college, I started with my major in chemical engineering. When I started doing youth work also simultaneous with that, I felt more and more drawn to do some kind of ministry. That's where my heart was. Even though I got really good grades in chemistry, physics, calculus, all that stuff, it's not where my heart was any longer. And so I went into uh, my advisor and I said, I want to change my major to a double major in religious studies and philosophy. That's what everybody wants to do, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, what? He said, you get good grades in this other stuff. Why are you changing your major? And I said, because I've been doing youth ministry and I really felt like the Lord is moving me towards some kind of ministry. That meant nothing to him. This was at the University of Pittsburgh. Meant nothing to my advisor. And he tried to talk me out of it. Some of you wished he would have. (laughs) But the reality is, is that I was so drawn by what the Lord had placed on my heart to do ministry. But his mindset was, you're going to struggle when you could be so financially successful. That was the driver. Fast forward a couple of decades, 1996. There was a magazine article, an educational forum. Volume 60, actually. And it said almost 50% of college students see financial success as the means to happiness. Now think about that. If you are not a financial success, however you define or describe it, and you're looking at other people that are more successful than you are, What's that going to do to you? It's going to make you discontent. It's going to make you unhappy. It's going to make you feel like you're a failure. It's going to always make you feel like you don't have enough. If that's what drives you. And that's nearly 50% of the population. That's back in the 90s. I'll bet it's higher now. And that's basically what my advisor was saying to me. You're not going to be a financial success. What other message are we getting that tells us this? That you've got to have? That you've got to be successful? I read something, and I don't remember where. But I read it not long ago, that every person in the United States will see in a given day, or will hear in a given day, up to 3,000 advertisements. It depends if you watch a lot of TV or you have the TV on or you have the radio on when you don't have the TV on or you're reading the newspaper or magazines, you're driving down the road and you see advertisements, you will be exposed up to 3,000 advertisements per day. What does that tell you? We are being bombarded by you need this, you need this. If you don't have this, you don't measure up. That's a problem. If you don't... Have this, you don't look as good as this person. You're not as content and happy as this person because how many ads do you see where people are miserable when they get what they want? 
And actually, it's true sometimes. People are miserable when they get what they want because it leaves them still empty. We're so driven by what the ads tell us subconsciously or overtly. Scripture talks about one thing. Psalm 27 talks about one thing. One thing we need. Or let's put it in the words of Jesus. What did he say is the greatest need we have? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We heard the kids talking about it when they sang their song. And love your neighbors yourself. That is what defeats the power of coveting. When we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and He is the focus of our life, and we seek to worship Him and serve Him and obey Him, we don't covet. Although it's interesting in Philippians, just as a sidebar on this, uh, Paul talks about how some people covet other people's spirituality. That's how bad we are with coveting. We even covet somebody else's spirituality. But the point is, is that when we seek to love Him and worship Him first and foremost, and then we allow that love to penetrate our hearts and our lives, and then we take that love to the world, it changes us. We're not always wanting what other people are or have. We are wanting to love the Lord and grow in the knowledge and love of Him. We are wanting to love and serve other people. It changes our perspective. It doesn't mean that we all need to go into the ministry. We just need to change the focus of our values and our love. That's why the love of money is the root of all evil. That's why really, if you think about it, what is behind everything? It's either greed or fear. We either want and we want and we want because we're never satisfied, because there's this God-sized void in us that only he can fill. Or we fear. We never have enough. And perfect love casts out fear. And when we rest in God's perfect love and then we allow that love to wash over us and we begin to love other people, it transforms us. But see, in order to understand that, in order to grow in that love, we need to trust him. If God is love and God is totally holy, then we can trust him because he's not trying to do us harm. He's trying to bless us and give us good gifts. And when we bask in that love, and oh, by the way, we're all unique. Everybody has their own gifts and their own position and their own unique relationships. You know, a lot of of times we, we, we want to be that individual, unique. But sometimes we want what everybody else has. Or so we think. When God has uniquely made you, and crafted you, and given you gifts and talents and opportunities and relationships because he loves you. And then he says, trust me with what I've given to you. Trust me. You know, there's scriptures, and a lot of times you will find these in the Psalms and the Proverbs, the wisdom literature. Wisdom is taking God's word and will, practically applying it to our lives. That we will read in Proverbs and Psalms, Trusting the Lord brings us that peace and contentment. And even goes so far as to say, our trust is the Lord. You know what a lot of people's trust is? Is their trust fund. No, our trust is the Lord. 
He is our trust. And we seek to love him and live for him and rest in what he gives us. And one of my favorite passages about this I memorized decades ago because it just struck me. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a lot of you could probably recite it too. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. The whole of your being. And lean not on your own understanding. See, our own understanding, apart from the Lord, is we want, we want. We want to be experiencing pleasure. We want to feel better than those around us. Like we've arrived. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your path straight. He'll give you really what you're looking for. See, what we're looking for, what we really need is often masked by our wants and we miss it. See, and when we live with this love and with this trust... What ends up happening is we have healthy relationships. And when we don't live with this love and this trust, we have a lot of unhealthy relationships. Where instead of treating people, I talked about this when I talked about the sixth commandment. Instead of treating people as people to be loved and to cherish, to serve, we treat people as objects, as ends to our means. Or means to our ends, I should say. That's what we do. We treat people as means instead of people. They're objects. And learning to really love with God's love other people is what the Lord wants us to do. We talk a lot about love in our culture. We hear a lot about love in song. But a lot of the love that's talked about is self-serving. It's getting what I want, what I perceive I need, giving me pleasure. And we miss it. We're really striving for With this, what really is contrasting coveting is learning to live with peace and contentment. And how many people are really living with peace and contentment? Because that's what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to live in His peace. He wants us to live with contentment. He wants us to live with a grateful heart. Interesting timing. What's this week? Thanksgiving. See, if you live in his peace and contentment, you will have a grateful heart. Because you will feel blessed. You'll know his love. You'll know his joy. You'll know his peace that passes understanding. Instead of always wanting. Instead of always feeling like you fell short. You don't have enough. You don't have what you really want. Let me read to you from Paul's letter to the Philippians, which, by the way, he was in prison when he wrote this. Not that I'm referring to being in need. He's in prison. For I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have a little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, when we are facing challenges in our lives of wants. See, what Paul says, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. That I don't really have the need. 
because God supplies all my needs and he is able. By the way, this scripture is in the context of what comes earlier in Philippians 4. Let me read it to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. When we're not coveting, when we're not treating God as someone who should serve our wants, when we're not treating other people as means to our wants and our pleasure. We learn to live in his peace and even in joy. If you heard this passage, start with joy. Because we live in his love. Because we live in his love, we're able to share his love. You know, see, we, we enjoy and love the fact that Jesus is our Savior. For those of us that believe that we know he died on the cross in our place for our sin. And we feel blessed by that. And we feel like, okay, now we don't have to worry about eternity. The danger is that God also wants us to be transformed in this world, in this life, now as we live this life. And we don't allow him to be our Lord. The Lord of who we are, the Lord of all we have. We don't allow him to take over. To be our source and our strength. You know, picture Jesus in your mind's eye right now. He's on the cross and he says, I die for you. And the question, will you live for me? That's really the question. Will you allow me to be your Lord so that you can understand more of my love and more of my provision? So that you can trust me. And not covet You know, as we move through the time of Thanksgiving, it is a time for for gratefulness and for thankfulness and living in contentment. But we're moving towards Christmas in another month. You know, a month from today is Christmas Eve. You probably realize that. The ads have been out for three months. But there's the gift. There's the gift. And instead of focusing on what we want, or even being consumed with giving, 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 so that someone else understands their contentment and their peace in the giving. What if we really learned what it meant to live with gratefulness and contentment? And live in his peace, because we trust him. We trust him. Because we love him. And he loves us. For those of you that are just completing Jesus Game Changers, and if you haven't completed it yet, sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you. But they talk about three three aspects of what it means to be a Christian that really changed the world, the Roman Empire. Number one, love and generosity. Number two, moral sexual purity. And number three, worship. See, when we keep him at the center of our lives 
And we seek to worship him, not worship the world and worship things. But what our worth is fixed on is the Lord. And when we live with his love and generosity that he's given to us in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And when we seek to be holy in our sexual relationships, in our lives, then we will learn what it means to live in his peace and his joy. Because we truly understand his love. And that's what we can be grateful for this Thanksgiving. I challenge you to reflect this week on whether you truly are a contented person, a grateful person. And if not, make Jesus Christ the center of your life as your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our world is so driven by things and the preoccupation of success, pleasure, that sometimes cause our eyes and our hearts to drift from you. Lord, help us truly to enjoy the blessings that you've given to us, the blessing of our family and friends, our relationships the blessing of the gifts and talents that you've given to us, the blessing of the fruits of our labor. But help us to have your perspective, your eye, your heart, on the call you have on our lives to love you and trust you and to love others and to serve them. Especially as we come to this week and we celebrate. Teach us. Help us to understand and help us to live in your peace that passes understanding and to be content because we have grateful hearts for all you have given to us and all you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.